The following audio is from Midtown Fellowship in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in becoming a part of our extended family, visit midtowncolumbia.com slash partner. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 today. Feel free to go ahead and turn there. Uh, we, are, uh, con- we are kind of winding down. We have two more weeks uh, this week and next week left in our series uh, on personal uh, liturgy. Basically, in this series, we've been looking at different... Uh, spiritual enemies, we've called them, that, that, that seek to rob us of the type of spiritual prospering and flourishing uh, that God has for us as uh, his people. Uh, the, the spiritual enemy that we'll uh, be continuing to look in today for the third week uh, is one that we've called self-absorption. Self-absorption, we define that as being preoccupied with your thoughts, feelings, desires, and concerns above all else. Again, being preoccupied with your own thoughts, feelings, desires, and concerns above all else. This is obviously not what we are called to uh, as believers, as we're called to be selfless and give ourselves away uh, for the work uh, of ministry that that God has called us to as believers. Uh, So last week, one of the ways we talked about fighting against uh, this self-absorption is through uh, the ministry of encouragement, that that with our words, we're able to, to spur one another on to love and good works. We are called to continue encourage each other uh, as believers. It's something that is very important because I don't know about you all, but I've seen Infinity War twice and I need some encouragement or some therapy or something. I need the brothers and sisters to take up the call to encourage each other. Also, speaking of encouragement, I feel like this is only fitting. Uh, Can we get a little bit rowdy and make some noise for the moms in the room right now? Can we just make a little bit of noise for all the moms in the room this morning? Amen. Amen. I, I, I appreciate that. I want to say specifically to our moms today, we love you. We appreciate you. We, we value you. We respect you. We need you. Uh, we, are, we are very grateful for you and every, uh, everything that you do. Also, uh, one thing that I want to uh, just always keep in front of us um, as, a, as a church family is that uh, holidays in general, Mother's Day in particular, uh, because of today, it, it, it is a time for, for celebration for many of us. It's also a time of, of grief for many of us uh, as well. That, that is the reality. There, there, there are some of us in this room even who aren't able to be uh, with our moms as we desire to be, or maybe we, we desire to, uh, to be a mother and, and aren't a mother currently at this time. There's a lot of grief often associated with holidays. May we as the believers uh, in Christ, may we be sensitive to our, our brothers and sisters in the faith on days uh, like this. And really for everyone who um, who experienced grief on Mother's Day. If, that, if that's you, I just want to pray uh, for you today before we get into our sermon. I just want to pray uh, for all of us who might be dealing with some, some pretty severe grief uh, this morning. Father, we know you from your word to be the God of all comfort. We know you to be the God of all peace. We know that you, we know that you comfort us with a comfort that allows us to comfort others. Lord, I pray that would be true of our church, not just today, but every day, Lord, that we would comfort those, that we will come alongside those who are grieving, that we will be a church of, of compassion, that we wouldn't be a church that's so inwardly focused on ourselves that we wouldn't be able to see those who are hurting among us, uh, Lord, even in, in times of, of celebration. Lord, I pray for uh, appropriate grief uh, for all of us who are grieving today, Lord, that we would uh, not try to avoid the process of grief, but at the same time, I pray for hope. I pray for a, a, a peace in you, Lord. I pray for a, a strength that comes just from knowing you and knowing that you are present, knowing that you're near, knowing that you care, knowing that you, you grieve right alongside with us because you love us so much. I pray you help us to see you as that uh, today. 
be with us. Comfort our hearts, Lord. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to actually, I'll read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to actually stay there in Colossians. I'm sorry, I messed you up. Stay there in Colossians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to kind of set up uh, what we're doing. Uh, and the reason I wanted to start here, we have been going through this personal liturgy series, and we've been calling you to different challenges, different ways to, to pursue growth. Paul gives us a, a specific way of, of understanding our spiritual health and a specific way of understanding uh, our growth that I think is very important as we kind of wind down on this series. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 through, 3, 1 through 3, we should have it up here. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Nothing. Paul says if we don't have love, we have nothing. That we deceive ourselves if we believe we are growing uh, in maturity as Christians, if we are not growing in love. If we're not growing in loving God and in, and in loving people, then Paul says that everything that we're doing, it's, it's useless, he says. He even talks about specific ways of worshiping God that's, that's like a clanging symbol. I want to always caution us as believers that regardless of how much we learn, regardless of how many scriptures and verses that that we can quote, if we are not growing in love, if we are not loving our neighbors as ourselves and, and seeking to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Paul says we have nothing and we have gained nothing. And so the, the whole call with these three weeks as we've been focusing on the spiritual enemy of self-absorption is to, is, to, is to look outward. It's to not be so preoccupied with ourselves, with our feelings, with our own concerns that we are able to actually love others. Because Paul says, the Bible says, if we are not doing that, then we have nothing, actually, if we have not love. There's something, it's going to take a while probably to get back to self-absorption in our time together today as we work through Colossians chapter 3. But if we're actually going to grow in Christian selflessness, if we're going to grow in being able to give ourselves away and serve others, uh, the main point that I want to make today is that what we actually have to do is understand our identity and who we actually are if we're going to actually be able to do that. It's one of the most essential things that we need to understand is who we are in Christ if we are actually going to fight against this self-absorption. And if we do not know who we are, then we will be mastered by our, by our concern with ourselves and won't truly be able to love others. I'm take some time to try to show you why I mean that. Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 9. This is Paul encouraging the church. He's already explained aspects of, of the salvation that they have in Christ. Now, he's going to give one specific application, one specific thing that he tells them to do. I want us to pay attention to how he seeks to encourage them to do what he is calling them to do. Verse 9, do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, right? So the command he starts off with in the verse is don't lie to each other. Be honest, tell the truth. But the way he encourages them to do that, he says, is put off the old self and to put on the new self. There's an old identity as a believer that you used to have that Paul will refer to as the old self. He says, put that off. And he says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. I think this is deeper than we often think. He didn't just say, hey, stop lying. 
And they would continue on with, with the next thing that he wanted to say. He said, now do not lie to each other and, and put off the old self. He's saying that, that is part of the old you. That is a previous identity that you had. And he's saying, but, but instead put on the new self. He doesn't just say stop doing the things that you used to do. He says stop acting like you're the same person that you used to be. That old way, that old self that you had has some ways about it that are not good So put that off and understand who you are now and live in light of that. You need to know who you are and you need to act like it. And in the Bible, the idea of Christianity is that we have been made new. The theological term is regeneration, that we have a new life now. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered him. He said, truly I say to you. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's saying, Nicodemus, you're going to have to have a whole new life. You're going to have to become a whole new person. That the people that are actually in the kingdom of God, the people who are truly followers of Jesus, have become new people. There there is a person that they once were, and now they have a new self, a new life. They have been born again. The Holy Spirit has given us new life. The Bible says we were dead spiritually, and now the Holy Spirit has made us alive. We have been born again 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All who truly love Christ, all who have truly repented of sin have been given a new life in him. There is a, there is a time when we were something else, someone else, someone different that is referred to as the old self. But now Paul is saying, put on the new self. You have been made different. Now act like it. Now live like you are completely new. Sin no longer rules and dominates us. Sin no longer enslaves us for we have been set free in Christ. We have been made new. We have been given, we've been empowered by God's spirit to turn away from sin and truly worship God as we were created to do. And if we're going to live as Christ calls us, we have to grow in the depth of our understanding and our grasp on this this new self of who we are now, this new identity that we now have in Christ. Let me try to explain it. When uh, one of my boys is having uh, a temper tantrum, so I got twin boys, they're five years old, um, and sometimes uh, they they will throw a fit over who gets to sit in which car seat, right? Something something small, something uh, minuscule. And, And so after we talk to them about the temper tantrum and probably have some type of consequences or whatever, uh, what, what I generally do is go to them and say, hey, you're not a baby anymore. That's who you used to be. You're not a baby anymore. They, they like to refer to themselves as big boys. I say, you're a big boy now. You're not a baby anymore. They, so I have a, they have a little sister who's six months old, and I say to them, what does she do when she doesn't get what she wants? She cries. She throws a fit. Can she articulate the problem and talk it through? No, she can't because she's a baby, so she just cries. That's who you used to be. That's the old you. You're not that anymore. You're a big boy now, right? So you, so you can actually do different. You can actually talk through what frustrations you have. You can actually explain this. You're, you're, you're acting like the old you when you are different now, and you need to act like who you are. You're no longer a baby. That's who you used to be. What am I doing? I'm showing them that their actions don't fit who they are now. Those actions fit who they used to be. Those actions don't fit who they currently are. It's not only a true Christian change and transformation. It's not, it's not primarily about trying to just do different things. It's primarily about being transformed and then understanding the transformation that has taken place and then living like it. When I first got married, I used to uh, always want to hang out uh, with, with my boys as late as I wanted to. And my wife would say to me over and over, 
You're married now. You're a husband now. Like, you're, you're married now. You're, you're trying to live like you're still single. And she wasn't saying I could never hang out with the boys. She's like, you're, you're trying to live like you're still single. We are creating a life together now. We're building a family together now. You're living like you're still the old you. You, you made a decision that you, that you didn't want to do that anymore, and now this is the life that you chose, and you need to live like it. Because this is what is actually true about you. You're a husband now. You're not single anymore. The sisters in the house, I love y'all. <laughs> I was having somewhat of what I would call an identity crisis. Webster's Dictionary defines identity crisis as a feeling of unhappiness and confusion caused by not being sure about what type of person you really are. That's Webster. I'll read that again. A feeling of unhappiness and confusion caused by not being sure about what type of person you really are. I was unhappy and I was confused because I was still letting my desires to do everything that I used to do when I was still single cause conflict inside of me. Right? I still wanted to hold on to that when I had chosen to be different. When I was something different, now there was new layers to my identity now that I needed to learn to live out. And it caused this confusion. It caused this unhappiness. And the sooner I came to terms with the new identity that I had, the less confusion and frustration that I had. The less confusion and unhappiness I have. As Christians, anytime we put back on the old self, we're having the same identity crisis. We've sought the transforming, sanctifying power of God, right? As we place faith in Christ and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we, we sought to be transformed. We, we came to a realization that I can't do this right on my own. I'm not living the way that I was designed. Only in Christ can I do that. We sought to be made new. We sought to turn away from sin. But then... The desires of what we had before cause us to have this inner conflict that we still want to hold on to the old self and the new self at the same time. Paul says, put away the old self and put on the new self. The Bible actually does this over and over again. Paul, as he's working to help them with his identity crisis that they've been having, he's just trying to draw some really clear lines for them. We can go ahead to verse 11, Colossians 3. He says here, notice, notice the different uh, layers and aspects of our identity that Paul uh, talks about and, and, and says they are nothing in comparison to being in Christ. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, I think I'm saying that right, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So here Paul is, is elevating the identity of being in Christ. Rooted in the fact that Christ is all to us and Christ is in all of us. We have this new identity now. And he lists Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. So what he's doing there is he's elevating the new identity in Christ as being more important, more thorough, more deeply rooted in us than ethnic heritage distinctions and cultural and religious backgrounds. He lists this new identity in Christ as being more core to who we actually are. Then he says barbarian and Scythian. So a barbarian is, is a word that they would use to uh, refer to. It wasn't as derogatory probably as it sounds now. It's, it's a way of referring, they refer to people who were foreigners, people who were outsiders who they did not know. Now the Scythian, that, that was, that's pretty uh, derogatory. They, they, they would look down on people who lived on the coast near the Black Sea. They, they would basically see them as unlearned savages. And so you got people from all different areas. You got Greek, you got Jews, you got barbarian, you got the, the Scythians that are now becoming believers. And Paul is saying that's not what's most important now. 
the things that you used to find your primary identity in no longer carry that same weight. He goes on to say slave or free. Let me pause. So this is a different type of slavery than going and stealing people, taking them to a new land, being free to abuse them however you wanted to, and enslave them and your families for as long as you want to. This is a completely different type of slavery. The Bible actually has multiple types of, of slavery that are in it. This slavery most likely, this slavery would have been closer to indentured, indentured servitude than it would be to chattel slavery as we've seen in our country, just so we're clear. So back into it. So what this most likely is dealing with is the issue of class. Probably the closest uh, uh, comparison that we have is probably socioeconomic class. It's probably the closest uh, comparison that we have. So he's saying your class is not primarily what defines you now but rather that Christ is all to you and that Christ is in all of us as his people. We know that Paul isn't ultimately saying that these people aren't still Jews, right? Paul identifies himself as a Jew uh, in his letters. He calls himself a Hebrew and a Jew. So what he's actually talking about, he's he's not saying these aspects of our identity completely go away. He's saying they take a knee and they bow down to our core identity as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. The things that used to ultimately define us no longer have that power over us. So for the believer, because we've been born again, because we've been made new in Christ, we are able to be one, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're black or white. I'm more of a Christian. So my my last name is Frederick. I'm more of a Christian than I am a Frederick. I'm more of a Christian than I am anything else. My Christian identity supersedes all. Now, in light of this new identity, check out what Paul calls us to do in verse 12 and 13. I think this is really important. Verse 12 and 13 reads, put on then, same phrasing, right? Same phrase we've heard already. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, or holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving one another or forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So here we see that same language again, this, this language of putting on what he's, what he's calling us to. He's not just saying that we need to do these things. He's saying to put on these things. So here's, here's what's interesting about this concept. These Christian virtues that he's calling us to put on, he doesn't, he doesn't say also uh, go be patient. He didn't say also go be compassionate. He didn't say also go be kind. He, didn't, he doesn't say go be humble. He doesn't say go be meek. He says put on compassionate hearts. He says to put on kindness. Here's the difference. What you wore into this room today, everything that you do in this room, and until you go and change, you do wearing that thing that you put on. This is language of, of, of a garment, of, of wearing something, of an article of clothing. So he doesn't say, so it's not, hey, go try to do one act of kindness today. He's saying everything that you do today, you do it wearing kindness like a garment or like a robe. It's what he's saying. You only do this if you understand that you're different. You only do this if you understand that you've been made new. He's, saying, he's not saying go, go and be humble. Or he doesn't say go and, and, and act with, with humility. He said, no, wear humility. And thus everything that you do, you do wearing humility. When he calls us to compassion, kindness, he's not saying, hey, go do random acts of kindness. He's saying, no, be, be kind. Wear kindness in everything that you do, no matter how you feel, no matter how people treat you. Wear kindness, wear humility like a garment. Put on, Paul says. 
But before he tells us exactly what to put on, I'm going to have to rewind just a little bit. Check out what he does. He says, put on, then he has a little phrase, and he tells us what to put on. Right? Let's go back to the verse. Put on then as, put on then, here's a phrase I want to focus on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's given them their identity before he even tells them what they're supposed to put on. Did you catch that? If you're like me, you have a tendency to just read straight to, okay, well, what does he want us to do? And skip over all the identity statements that we have to understand in order to actually get there. In order to actually live the way he called us to live. So let's check each one of them out. He calls us holy, set apart. This word means set apart for God's purposes. It means to be distinct. It means to stand out from the world and shine his light. Christ lived a sinless life on our behalf, died in our place on the cross, granted us credit for his life of righteousness, for his sinless life. And now we're declared holy by God himself. We're declared clean by God himself. We are holy. Paul says you need, you need to know this. He's given them their identity before he tells them what exactly they are to be putting on. He says it's God's chosen ones, that he knew us before he masterfully made us in our mother's womb. That he had a plan for all of his people before we were ever born to come to know him and to be used for his beautiful, glorious purposes. He says, you've been chosen. He says, beloved or beloved, that we are his beloved. Oh, this is one we should praise God over. You know who my beloved is? My wife. Her name's Hannah. She's great if you haven't met her. I love y'all, but my love for her is is sacred, it's special, it's unique. She's my beloved. Paul is saying that part of our identity now is that we are the loved ones of God. We are the beloved. We are God's beloved. That is the strongest, most passionate love that has ever existed in the universe. And Paul is saying you need to know that that love has been affectionately placed on you. You are loved. Definitively, you are loved. It means that there is not a a stronger love that has ever existed than the love that you now experience from knowing God. You need to know that. Because some of us in the room right now, we feel unloved, we feel unwanted, we feel like nobody cares about us because we forget this new identity that we have, that we are the loved ones of God, sons and daughters of God, whom he has affectionately placed his love on. We are his beloved. We are loved beyond what we can even fathom with our minds, what our hearts will be able to even comprehend. We are loved. We are chosen. We are holy. There's some Christian traditions today and churches that have a strong focus on communicating um, and and, and talking about and really just emphasizing um, that we're sinners, that we're deeply flawed, that we're sinful people who always do wrong, that we're depraved, that we're broken. to the point that there's a lack of emphasis on the fact that we've been made holy in Christ, that we are healed in Christ, that we are being sanctified every day, that he calls us his saints, his, his holy ones. And I, and I understand it's extremely important that we know how sinful we are, that, that, that helps us to see just how gracious and merciful and forgiving that our God is. That's extremely important that we know that about ourselves. But it should not be in competition with the fact that God also says that we're holy and that we're his saints, that we're his children, and that we are loved by him, and that in Christ he's given us victory over our sin. This is important that we understand about our identity. Because if all you know about your identity is that you're sinful and that you're broken, you might feel defeated by your sin. You might feel like there's no way that you can actually find victory over the sin in your life. You might feel like there's no way that you can actually put on the new self. But Paul reminds them, no, you're, you've been made holy. You are the chosen people of God. 
You are loved by God. We, we, we have to have a, uh, an, an understanding of our identity in Christ that's not truncated down to just one thing. We have to understand the complexities. Yes, we, we, we sin and we are sinners, but at the same time, we're saints because of what Jesus has done. We understand that we sin that helps us to understand his mercy and his forgiveness. We understand that, that we are saints made holy and are able to walk victoriously against sin so we can understand the power of God. Understand how sinful we are it helps us understand his grace. Understanding that we've been transformed helps us to understand his power. We must understand who we are. We must understand our identity, that we are his saints, his holy ones, set apart because he has made us new. After telling them who they are in him and telling them that they aren't just to do these things by, by, by just trying to add certain acts to their day, but actually by trying to put on these Christian virtues... He continues on with the list I said a little bit earlier, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. You'll notice that all these things that he's telling them to do are things that have a role to play in love and Christian unity. All these, I should say all these virtues he's calling them to put on are actually uniting. He's calling them to put this on in a way that unites them together. This allows them to walk in love and unity towards each other. And that's, I think, part of the reason why he said a little bit earlier, there's no more Jew or Greek, right? Because there was always this long-standing tension and beef between the Jews and the Greeks. There was oftentimes hatred between each other. He said, no, because of this new identity, you're able to walk in unity and love together. These, these virtues that he's calling us to put on enable us to love. I'll say it this way, enable us to not live self-absorbed lives. These virtues that he's telling us to put on. And I really believe that these virtues that he lists in verse 12 are, are stated in contrast to verse 8. Let's look at Colossians 3, 8 for a second. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Right? So earlier in verse 8, he says, put these things away. The anger, the wrath, the malice, the slander, obscene talk. Put, put all of that away. Jump down to verse 12. He says, but put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, weakness, and patience. You notice that in verse 8, those things that he listed are things that oftentimes cause division and a lack of love in the body of Christ. He's telling them to put on the new self that they will actually be able to live in a way that is not self-absorbed. Put on the new self that they're actually able to live in a way that is loving towards one another. In verse 8, he says, put away anger and wrath. So anger is a response to being hurt in some way. Wrath is the, is the outpouring of anger. It's, it's when the anger consumes you to the degree that now you are, you are hurtful and damaging to others, right? So that's wrath. It's, it's like the, the outpouring. It's, it's like when, when, when the anger takes over and you can't control it and it just comes out to harm others. So that's wrath. It starts with being hurt, generally speaking, in some way. Then the anger builds up and then the wrath is, the, is that anger kind of unleashed, uninhibited anger. He says to put that away, but then in verse 12, he says to put on compassion, which is responding with love and care to the hurt of others. Did you notice that? Wrath comes from an over, an being overly preoccupied with our own hurts to the point that now the anger becomes this wrath that we pour it out because of how we are hurt. Compassion is being so focused on others that you see the hurt in others and respond with love. Wrath happens when we are so hurt that we go and hurt others and cause harm and destruction to others. Compassion is when we see the hurt in others and try to bring life and care and love to them. He's saying put off the old self 
when the anger becomes the wrath and put on the new self. Self-absorption leads to wrath. Love leads to compassion. If you're quick to harm others in your anger, that's, he, he's calling us, he's saying, put that away. That's not who you are anymore, he's saying. That's the old self. That's who you used to be. You need to understand that's not who you are now. You've been made new in Christ. Put that away. Put on compassion as those who have received compassion from Christ. That's who you are. One of the other things he lists in verse 8 is malice. Malice is to have ill will towards someone. It's, it, it is the desire to see some type of harm or pain come, up, come upon someone else. It's the desire. It's, it's, fundamentally, it's the belief that I, will actually, I can actually find some type of joy to somebody else being harmed. It's the root of unforgiveness, right? Is that, that, that I will actually, I would like to see something bad happen to this person. That's malice. That's malicious intent. So we feel like we're gaining when something bad happens to someone else. He's contrasting that in verse 12 to kindness. Kindness is to be friendly, is to be generous, is to be considerate of others. It is the desire to see good happen to someone else, right? So malice is, is ill will towards someone. It's the desire to see something bad happen to someone else. Kindness is the desire to see something good happen to someone else. Malice is the desire to see harm come to someone and, and, and feel like I will find some type of peace or joy to see harm come to someone else. Kindness is when I will find joy in seeing good come to someone else, and thus I want to act in a way that brings good to others. The old self, it brings division. It brings this, this self-absorption. How self-absorbed is that? That I'm trying to find my happiness through your loss, through your pain, through your hurt. How self-absorbed is that? He's saying, put that off. He's saying, put that away. Put off the old self. Put on the new self, he says. The new self that now delights in the good of others, of everyone, regardless of how they've treated you. He says, put on kindness. And know that your joy will be found there. He continues on, the, I believe, the last virtue, virtue in verse 12 that he brings up is patience. It's this concept of long-suffering. Right? That, that, and specifically in the context of community and relationships, with this, which this passage is in, is the willingness to continue on in love with someone through difficult times. Right? If it's not difficult, then it's not patience. If it's easy, then it's not patience. If it's easy, that's, that's existence, right? You're just, you're just continuing on through. But if it's difficult, if there's suffering involved, if there's pain that someone has caused, caused you, that's patience. He says that's the new self. That's the new self. That we look to our Savior who was patient with us. Not only did he go to the cross and die and, and, and endure that when he could have at any moment had the legions of angels come and get him down but who, who suffered all that night beforehand as they beat him, as they bruised him, as they tortured him. We are those who have received patience. We are the beloved of God. And now we are a patient people. And Paul is saying now this is, we need to act like it. He explains a little bit more about what it looks like to practice patience in Colossians 3, verse 13. So I mean, chapter 3, verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Bearing with one another. It's this concept of, I know you mess up. I know you sin against me. I know you sin against people that I care about. I'm going to continue to bear with you. Why? Because we have this new identity. 
because I know Christ is all to us, and I know that Christ is in all of us. So that means we're brothers and sisters now. So I'm going to bear with you. I'm going to continue on with you, right? I'm not just going to keep you at, at, at this distance just because you did something I don't like. Forgiving each other for the Lord has forgiven you. This command to put on patience, even when we're hurt or offended, to stick it out. Whether or not we live this out, like I said earlier, it's an identity issue. It's an identity issue. It's, it's pretty simple. If we don't walk in patience and ongoing love towards each other, then we have an identity crisis. We're still trying to hold on and put on the old self when he's calling us to put on the new self. If we walk in patience, we're growing and understanding our true identity. We're really starting to grasp who we are now as the people of God. Uh, the church that uh, sent us out, our downtown church, the church that planted us uh, as a church, uh, has, has for, for years, probably close to a decade now, been involved in, uh, in, in homeless ministry and helping people who are in a homeless situation transition uh, into having uh, a home. One of the things that was noticed as we were working and kind of I was working with other people and kind of got a transition house together uh, to help, uh, I think it was helping men transition off of the street. Uh, and there, were, there were three or four guys that were living in this transition house and there were sometimes when some of the members from our church would go and check in on the guys who were at the house in the morning and found one of the brothers sleeping outside. Now, he's in a transition ministry, right? So he's coming for the purpose of no longer having to sleep outside, of, of, of being able to have a home. But because that is so who he understood himself to be, he slept outside when he had a house. Because he, even though his situation had changed his identity, his core identity of who he understood himself to be had not. So he had a house, he had roof, he had shelter. But he still slept outside. Not having a, the, the, the realities of, of, of homelessness was no longer true for him, hear this, but he was living as if it was because of an identity crisis. He was living in, in, in the reality that, that used to be true and could not be free from it because he didn't see himself Differently, it was bound to the old reality, and at that point had not been able to put on the new reality. I don't know if you, if any, how many of you have worked with children before, especially if you've done any type of mentoring with children before. Man, you can see a child's eyes light up. I almost feel like you can see their whole countenance light up. When they go from thinking they can't to go to believing they can't. When they go from believing themselves to be someone who can't to go to believing themselves to be someone who can when they go from identity, identifying themselves as someone who is, who is not capable to identifying themselves as someone who is capable, it's like you can see the light come on inside. It changes someone. Studies will show that, that children who are told that they can, that they are capable as a part of their identity, will perform better. Why? Because we live out who we truly believe ourselves to be. We live out who we truly believe ourselves to be. What we believe about our identity, what we grasp at, at, at a core level, if our core identity matters for us. I have a friend. He uh, adopted uh, a, group of, a group of siblings. And uh, they had gone through, just without going into the details, a lot of troubling things that happened uh, to them in the home uh, that they were in with, with, their, uh, with their mother. Uh, and then they kind of bounced from, uh, from home to home uh, in the uh, foster system. And so my, my, my friend, he's looking to adopt them, right? He's, he wants to take in the whole uh, sibling group, like a whole, the whole clan. And sometimes when they, would, when they were first adopted, uh, uh, he and his wife, maybe they have a babysitter, they would go somewhere, maybe go on a date night or something like that. And when he got back, the children would be like, 
you came back. And he's like, yeah, I came back because we're a family. Yes, I came back. And they're like, we just assumed that at some point you would leave and not come back. They had come to believe because of the situations in their life that they would never truly have a family. They didn't know what it was like to actually be a son and a daughter of someone who's going to stick around. They, they didn't have any clue. So the, the old reality, even though that old reality was no longer true, they were still experiencing the anxiety, the fear, the loneliness that came from the old reality that they were living in. And over time, I even was talking to him a, a, a week or two ago about it. He said, over time, man, a lot of the, the, the fights and the arguments that we used to have, not, it's not the same anymore. We just don't have those things. What happened? Children came to believe, they came to understand about themselves. I'm a member of a family that's not just going to fall apart. It's not just going to go away. I can find some some rest here. I can can find something to, to, to hold on to here. And get this, it changed their behavior radically. It changed their behavior radically. They, became, they began to understand what it truly means to be a son, to be a daughter. And this is the way Christianity works. We, we come to know Jesus. He declares us holy. He declares us his children. He declares us his beloved. And we spend the rest of our lives learning what it looks like to live in that reality. It's called sanctification. As we grow in living out what he has already declared to be true about us, he calls us holy. And we spend the rest of our lives learning what it looks like to live as one who is holy. He calls us justified and forgiven, and we spend the rest of our lives learning how to live as one who's been forgiven. He calls us a child of God, and we spend the rest of our lives growing in our grasping of what it means to be a child of God. This self-absorption, it is an identity issue. The Christian who is self-absorbed is still trying to hold on to the old self. They haven't truly come to believe and grasp what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be the holy, beloved, chosen people of God. My prayer for us, if we ever have any, any issues as far as what our identity is, that we will look at our Savior, that we will look at the most selfless act this universe has ever seen when God himself, God himself comes and dies for the people who are rebelling against him. He dies for his enemies and he loves them so much that he welcomes them, welcomes them in as family and continues to patiently walk with us in this life until he takes us to the next where we will be with him in paradise forever. That is who we are. And in the meantime, we learn what it means to live that out. I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll partake in communion together. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that you have made us new. We're grateful that we're not the same people that we used to be. We're grateful that you are renewing us, as your word says. That you have regenerated us, that we have new life, that we have, we have been born again because of the power of your Holy Spirit. God, would you help us to grasp that? Would you help us to know that? Would you help us to, to live that? Lord, that, that, our, that our primary goal wouldn't just be to start doing a few things differently, but that our goal would be to understand who we are, that we are your children, that you have made us different, that that old self, that that's not who we are anymore. Would you help us to believe that? Would you help us to remember that? Would you help us to encourage each other with that? That we would encourage each other, like, that's, that's not who you are anymore, bro. That's not who you are anymore, sister. You've been made new in Christ. You're a child of God. Lord, as we spend time in your word, would you help us not to, to, just, to just skate on past the, the parts in the, in the verses that tell us who we are, that we will sit with that, that we will wrestle with that, that you, your Holy Spirit will help us to see in ways that we don't truly believe that we've been made new, 
that you will open our eyes to ways that, that we are not walking in faith, but instead walking in doubt. Would you grant us repentance, Lord? We're thankful for your mercy, Lord. All of us, we've, we've gone back to the old self. We've gone back and, and put on the old self, God, and you. You're merciful with us every time. For that, we're grateful. And we're also grateful that you, you call us out of it and call us to put on the new self. You call us to put on the compassion, the, the humility, the, the meekness, the kindness, the love. Lord, as we do that, would you crush the self-absorption that, that lurks in our hearts? It's in Christ's name I pray.